0: We're going to be continuing on in our uh, series in the Gospel of Mark. And actually today we, we're going to take a pause, not a, not a break, we're not wrapping it up, but we're going to pause because we start our Advent series uh, the next week, but we're actually pausing. And, and it's an amazing passage. To pause on. It's one of those passages, like if this whole gospel of Mark was like a movie or like a show, this would be like a to-be-continued episode. It's like a, like a cliffhanger type things. And I know uh, Grant is genius with this. As he was cutting up these little passages, he was like, you know what, we're going to pause for Advent and I'm going to put this perfect passage right here. It's going to be great. And he nailed it. So yeah, so we got that today. Um, and we're going to be jumping into that. But I wanted to give a little context before we read the passage. Um, This passage that we're going through is one of those amazing passages that creates a really tough tension, but then also gives us the hope that allows us to see through that and to push past that. And it's a, it's one of those passages that really does both of those things well. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a little bit. There's a lot of background. A lot of what Jesus has been doing up until this point is is kind of leading to that. Uh, so he has to unpack some stuff, and that's going to take a little bit. But I think the hope that comes at the end of it is amazing. So as we do that right now, I'm just going to read through the whole passage. And what I would love for you guys to do is to just maybe not even follow along Uh, If you think better to follow along, that's completely fine. But just receive this word, just receive this passage and think about the things that stick out to you and think about the things that God is saying in it. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 and we're going to start in verse, if the wind will stop ruining my life. There we go. Now it's helping me instead of ruining me. All right, good. So we're going to start in verse 32. This is why Grant prints it out on stiff pages instead of doing it this way. (laughs) Verse 32, it says, And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am drink, that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared for. And when the ten heard, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life a ransom for many. God, I pray as we go through this passage today that you would just open our eyes to what you would have for us. Lord, that as we hear these words, as we think about what they mean for our life, Lord, that you might um, prepare our hearts for the truth that you have for us. God, it's hard sometimes to grasp the reality of all the things that are going on. It's hard to grasp the reality of, of all the things we have to deal with in this life, Lord. But we trust that you are with us, so we ask that you reveal that to us today. We thank you for all these things in your name. Amen. This passage, as I read it um, over and over, as I said, there's a tension. And the tension that I feel like that comes up with this passage is this, is that Jesus is telling his disciples that, hey, this road that we're on, physical road that we're on, it's leading to something, right? If this is a movie, again, he's, he's foretelling. We get a little glimpse as to what's happening in the plot line. He's like, this is going to happen, and it's going to be very difficult, this road. And, and, and there's this tension of, of this road and this path and following Jesus is really, really hard. And, and the thing that comes up in my mind is like, well, well, why? If I was the disciples, right, I'd be sitting there on the road. I'd be like, can we just, this road looks nice. This one over here doesn't have you dying at the end of it. Can we go down that road? Because I'd rather go down that road. And I think it raises this tension in us with um, Scripture and when we think about following Jesus. And the tension is uh, when I became a Christian, after I became a Christian, this is the hard part, after I became a Christian, I heard a lot of speakers and a lot of people say, yeah, you know, the Christian life, it, everything doesn't just get easy, right? Everything doesn't just fix itself. You aren't perfect all of a sudden. Everything doesn't just come easy to you and all your sin go away. But, but actually, it kind of gets harder there's things that are more difficult, and I was like, hey, could you have told me that prior to me signing up for all that? That would have been nice to know. But it's this thing that uh, I hear, and I was always confused, and there were certain points in my life where I really, truly questioned, why is this worth it? If following Jesus is going to make hard something that is already hard, make difficult something that for me is already difficult, Why? And I think when I asked that question, what I was given to pacify my question was, oh, yeah, but like, you know, the end, you, do you want to spend eternity here or here? Your choice, right? And that was supposed to, and, and honestly, when I became a Christian, I was so far off from that, I didn't, I didn't even think I could really die. Once I became a Christian, I was like, God has a plan for me. He can't kill me. So like, that, that whole promise of the afterlife thing wasn't enough to really keep me going. But the other thing to pacify me when I pushed in some more was this, this piece It was said of, oh yeah, but remember your sin? You know that stuff inside you that's kind of gross, that's wrong, that's counter to what God would have for you? Jesus comes in and he cleans that up. And I was like, sweet, I believe that. And that's awesome. But after years of being Christian, you know what I found? I'm really good at making things a mess again. I'm really, really good at at getting the stuff dirty that Jesus came in and cleaned up. And so I was getting frustrated a little bit with my faith and saying like, These two things aren't a fullness of the answer. Why? I think there's some credence when you see people say, or you see it on a TV show or a movie or something, where it's like, yeah, I'll accept Jesus on my deathbed, and we'll be good to go, you know? I'll just wait until then type of thing, right? And the reason is, is because the focus of Jesus sometimes becomes on what happens to us afterwards. But I believe in this passage, it shows us something more. It shows us that there's something more that we have to hope for and to look forward to. So as we jump in, uh, in verse 32, it says, And they were on the road up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. This passage, um, this part's really interesting. So we have a picture, and the picture is Jesus. They're walking down the road, and Jesus is actually in front of them this time, all by himself and they're amazed. And there's two, two vibes with the people behind them. They're either amazed at what's happening or they're kind of freaking out and a little bit scared. And that's what's going on. But the crazy thing is Jesus hasn't told them yet where they were going and what was about to happen. And you know from other passages, right, like, like Jesus has told them two times, the ones that went up to the mountain three times, that he was going to his death. But the thing I've learned about the disciples is they don't get it. So chances are they aren't like, oh, this is the time, because they're always missing it, right? So there was something different about this journey. And sometimes I think it's important to pause and realize the person of Jesus knew where he was walking, the weight of what was before him. I imagine his demeanor, his intentionality, the way that he was acting, the way that he was moving was striking and they're following him and he knows that and he stops his journey. He stops his journey to address the disciples because he knows what they're thinking and he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief of priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles that we see in this passage that Jesus is saying very clearly this time, this is the end road. I've told you this before. There is no obscure things that I'm referencing about, about me and the sacrifice I'm making. We're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over. And one of the beautiful pieces to this, and I think it can't be lost when we get familiar with the passage, is is Jesus wasn't captured and forced to Jerusalem and forced into a condemnation and forced up the hill and onto the cross. He pursued that. They were still on the road. He very easily could have taken the road that didn't lead to his death. But he went where he was supposed to go because he had a mission that he was on and the disciples are starting to catch wind of that and he's trying to make it very very clear and he goes on and says in verse 34 and they and they will mock him yes and they will mock him spit on him flog him and kill him and after 3 days he will rise this very heavy passage right this is what Jesus is going to what Jesus is making clear is that in every way possible he is going to be disgraced. He's saying that I'm going to be captured by the religious leaders, the people who are God's people in the covenant of God, and they're going to condemn me, but they aren't going to follow through with my condemnation. They're going to cast that off into the Gentiles. There is no more disgraceful way to be dealt with, especially for a religious leader in the day, than that. And that he will be mocked and he will be spat upon And he will be killed and flogged. That physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, Jesus will be completely and utterly disgraced. And he said, this is the road that we're going down. This is where I'm going. And again, as so often in the scriptures we get humanity entering itself. The next verse, and this is stark, but this is literally how it goes. You can check me if you want to go. Uh, verse 35, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Right? So he's just like, Hey, guys, I'm about to die. And they're like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the raising again, that means authority. So we, we're going to need you to do something for us, Jesus. Right? They're trying to, to, to vie for the right position. Because they have in their mind what's going to happen. They have in the mind what this means for them. And it goes on to say that, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us one to sit on your right hand and one on your left in glory. Jesus said to him, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized by the baptism with which I am baptized? So again, as I said before, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of things building up. We're going to try to get through that to get to the hope part at the end, but we got to go through that. What he's saying to them is, for one, the thing that really struck me is they, you know, like that's pretty presumptuous going to Jesus and saying, hey, I need you to do this. This is like Reed does does this to me now. He comes up to me. He's like, dad, let me do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. He tells me that all the time. I'm like, no, bud, you're not going to do what you want to do all the time. And he just tells me, he's like, no, dad, I'm going to do what I, you know? And it's like, whoa. And that's what this feels like. Like, how would you say that? But Jesus doesn't correct and he doesn't rebuke them. He asks them a question. He's actually already showing them what he is going to ask them to do later. He, they, they have this ridiculous request and he still asks them what he can do for them. And they say that they want to sit on his right hand and his left hand. And he says, you don't understand. Now, just for clarity's sake, the cup and the baptism are two things that we kind of, in our post-Jesus understanding, have an assumption of. So for the cup, a lot of the times is like communion, right? Hopefully you guys have all your stuff. We're going to be doing that later, just so you know. Um, But back then, the understanding of cup in that culture was God's wrath, a lot of the time when it talked about cup, it was the complete and total use of God's wrath. We're talking like scorched earth policy type thing, like the fullness of God's wrath. And the baptism, what Jesus is pointing to is the baptism when John baptized him. And it was a repentance of sin. what he's talking about is the baptism that will be the complete and total covering and fullness of the need for sin. That it will cover all of that. That's what he's talking about here. And those two things are only left for one person, and that is the Messiah, that is Jesus. And he said that, and he's saying, you guys don't understand what you're asking. You actually can't participate in those things. So he asked them, are you able to do this? And they said to him, we are able. So there's two parts. Either the disciples are still very ignorant, and they just kind of want to get that spot, you know, at this right or left hand of glory, or they're starting to get the weight of it and realize that this journey that they're on is going to cost them too. And Jesus' response is, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant you, but is for those whom it has been prepared. So we have this story up to this point, and Jesus says this. What he is saying is that this baptism he knows that they can't do the things that he is going to do. But what he's saying to them is to follow the gospel. To What I'm going to ask you to do to bring the gospel into the rest of the world, that's going to cost you something. That you're going to feel turmoil and you're going to feel strife and you're going to feel even a lot of you are going to experience death because of this. And you're going to participate in that. And I need you to know that it's not all easy. And again, this question bubbles up in me. Then why would you do this? Why would you follow if that's what it's going to cost you? And in verse 41, it says, The ten heard this and began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them again. What I love this is James and John are missing it a little bit, right? Because the question that they had, the thing that they wanted isn't bad and it isn't wrong. Their expectation of what that meant is what was off. Because up to that point, they thought, yeah, of course. That's why we see this in politics and other things, right? You volunteer a bunch of hours. You do your best to help this person get elected or get into power so that you maybe get a little kickdown, right? You get a little authority too. And they're thinking, this is our shot. And this is where we're going. And so they're trying to get that position and the others are indignant when they hear that and and this just shows that they're indicting themselves too because everyone's missing it. Everyone's missing it. And Jesus, instead of getting upset, instead of just moving forward and realizing they aren't going to get it, he stops and addresses them again and says, you know that those who who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. What he's saying is there's a way of living, and this is really important, and we're about to get to the relevant, stick with me, I know it's a lot of background stuff, Um, that uh, what he's saying is that there is a way of living right now, and and I want you guys to think, right now we live in a culture where we understand the way of the world and the kingdom, and we can make that differentiation, we can think about that in our mind. That didn't exist yet. There was one way that exists in that culture and it was the way to where people got into power and the way that they did it is they stomped on the ones underneath them and kissed up to the people above them until they got as high as they could and then they did everything they could to stay there. We see this all throughout and that's still now today, right? You exploit the people who are weaker so that you might stay or gain power. That was the only way the world worked back then. There was no context for anything else. He said, this is how it works. This is what you see. The reason that you're asking me these questions is because you have no other context for how to rule. Why would they think it meant anything different when the Messiah was going to come other than Jesus was going to come, subordinate Rome, subordinate all the other powers, and be the authoritative ruler of all? And he said, this is... This is how the world acts. But it shall not be so among you. But it shall not be so among you. Whenever that's there, right? Whenever Jesus is saying and says, but something else, we need to listen. Because he says, this is how it is, but this is how it's going to be. The only context you have for being authority, having authority, being in the right place is to lord it over people, is to exert authority over people. I think about this, and again, as, as a dad, there's a lot of things come up, but I think about this. The other day with Reed, I went up to him, and he was upset, and I had to apologize because I was being harsh with him, and I was like, hey, buddy, I'm I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I was harsh with you, and... And I just kind of, you know, I, I was distracted and I took it too far. Can you do me a favor? Can you let me know if I'm not listening, right? Because I was focused on the babies and I just reacted to read, right? And I was like, can you just let me know if you need something from me? Let me know if you feel like I'm, I'm not paying attention to you or I'm not hearing you. And, and it was this time that, that I sat in that tension of what I wanted to do, if I want to be honest, and what I've done in the past is do the, because I told you so, right? He's asking why, he's like, hey, I wanna, and it's like, no, and he's like, well, why? Well, cause this, why? And at some point, I'm just like, because I told you so, right? Like, and I try my best not to do that as much as we've all been there, right? Most of us, it doesn't even have to be kids, it could be anyone just because I told you so. And it's this desire to just assert your authority. Ultimately, I don't need to even give you an answer. I'm just gonna tell you to do what I want you to do but it shall not be so among you, but whoever be great among you must be your servant. What Jesus is saying here, and this is really important, he's not telling people not to be great. He's actually saying that people are going to be great among you, that there's still going to be a hierarchy, that there's still going to be tiers of people out there. That's going to happen. And I think about this, translating here, there are great people on this lawn right now. Some of you have created a business, have moved up in your work, have have developed a family, have raised kids, which I'm at the very beginning stage, so applaud you for getting there. Like, have had a marriage that has lasted longer than the normal amount of marriage, right? Has served a lot of you guys that helped yesterday out. Those are amazing, great Sometimes I think we think Christianity is we need to downplay those things that we've done or downplay our authority or our status or the things that we have, whether it's money, power, acclaim, capability. And Jesus is like, no, 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 don't downplay it. Don't get rid of it. Let me focus you on what to do with it. The great among you need to be servants. So there's two words, there's servants and slave coming up. I did a little bit of word study on these words because I feel like this is where the instruction's coming from. So servant, that actually translates as one is minister, but I was like, there's too much baggage with minister, right? They're going to be like, oh, that's for like Grant and Josh and Melody and, you know, like, but the other one is a hasty messenger. And one of the best examples I saw was actually a waiter. And, and one of the things I think that's just really beautiful about that, how many of you ever, ever had customer service or have waited like tables or done any type of thing like that? Any customer service, have to interact with people? Yeah, a lot of you. Anyone who's ever done anything in customer service knows that people aren't always the best. It's kind of a tough job, right? Just make sure to have grace for your waitresses and waiters. Like, it's a tough job. But I thought it was this beautiful picture because what it is is it's a boss is tasking an employee to do something, and that thing that they're tasking them to do is actually serve in every way possible the needs of the guests that come in. It's what's expected of you when you work in pantry, is that you're tasked to serve our guests as they come in, right? And it's actually a beautiful picture that that from the outside, it just looks like you pretty much work for the people that come in, right? They're telling you what to do all the time and stuff like that, but you're actually tasked with that from your boss, And it says that those who are great among you must be your servant. And whoever is first among you must be a slave of all. Now, there's two parts to this. One is the first among you is obviously a reference to Jesus himself, right? Like if we're talking top of the pyramid, that's the first among. And he's saying, hey, if I am the Messiah that you're saying I am, this is what my life means. It means that I'm going to become a slave of all. And that word actually translates as the, the lowest form of servitude. That means you have zero autonomy, zero decision-making, zero uh, things you get to do outside of what is requested of you by your boss or your master. And he's saying, if you have ultimate authority, you know what's requested of you? That you do your best to submit to those that you are called to lead. And again, to use this, sorry, again, parent analogy, but to use this with uh, kids, one of the things in having two two two-year-olds is they don't do much of anything unless I do it for them, right? Or Lindsay does it for them. Like they can't feed themselves, change themselves. I'm kind of a slave to my kids. Like if I'm honest, I was like, this is exactly what it is. And, but in that situation, when I talked to Reed, what I realized is there's a certain stage where you're just keeping kids alive. If you're, you know, like you're doing your best, you're trying to stay alive too. But then you get to a point where you're actually realizing, oh, they're listening and, and they're growing into people. And that conversation that I had with Reed, what I realized is it was an opportunity for him to see as his dad, as someone who is in charge of him, that, that he has a say that I can come to his level, that I ask him to help me be better at parenting him. Because this is our tension that we go through. For most of you, I imagine you've been here. That when you have had authority, or you have been put in a place of greatness, or you've gained a position of favor and authority and all that, that the tension that you have is to hold on to that. To grasp it, to make it clear where you stand in the in the hierarchy of everything, right? And the last thing you want to do is show weakness. For me growing up, a lot of weakness was either being sad or emotional or not being able to do something right, like being raised in the way I was raised, that was like weakness. I don't want anyone to see that. If something hurt on the football field, it didn't hurt. It was fine. I was like, right? Like there was this weakness. You don't want to show it. You want to hold on to it with everything you have. But what Jesus is saying here is that when you find yourself in those positions, if you want to show the kingdom of God, if you want to show the glory of God, what you do is in every way you can, you relinquish that authority. Verse 45, and we're ending with this. For every, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This passage, this part right here, just really stuck out to me and when i was thinking through the summation of this passage i was like okay how does this wrap up where does this go what's the main point i think it came to this there's and i thought of this this sentence to try to sum it up there's no greater life lived than one lived in service of others there's no greater life lived than one lived in service of others and And I did some work on that. I was like, that sounds too good to come from me. I probably stole that. It's a quote that I stole and I need to look at. So I looked it up a lot and, and I didn't see the exact quote. And I'll get to some other things I found, but it wasn't exact. I was like, oh, good. That's just what the passage is saying. But there's no greater life lived than the one lived in service of others. That Jesus, when he was pursuing the cross when his disciples said, I want to sit at the right and left hand, what they didn't know is Jesus, in the greatest part of his glory, was going to be elevated above everyone else around him on a cross. That those that were on his right and left hand were criminals. And that that was going to be the way that he assumed all of sin, all of that which is counter to God. And he was going to nail it to a cross, bury it in a tomb, and raise again three days later. And he said, if you want the kingdom of God to exist, if you want to know why it's worth living the hard life, pursuing Jesus with everything that you have, it's not just an end of life insurance. It's not just so you can be morally better than other people or feel good about yourself. It's this. there's great joy and peace and purpose that comes from submitting your life to other people from doing everything you can to support and love and care for other people. If we talk about being new song and being transformed by the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus, love people, and do good, following Jesus is about being about what Jesus is about. And he's telling us the the apex of what he's about is serving other people to death. That's where he took it. And that's what he's calling us to. And this has made its way through culture. I'm going to read a couple quotes to you. Um, the first one is this, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Anyone know who that's from? I'm going to be super impressed if you know any of this. Just want to venture, I guess? No, that's good. That's right. It's Gandhi, by the way. So, so. Oh, yeah, Gandhi, I knew that, right? We all got that. Yeah, so the best way to, uh, to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others Only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. That's Albert Einstein. And finally, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. If we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to each other. That's Mother Teresa. And the reason I read these quotes isn't to say like, oh, these people had it. Like, this is just important description. Like, let's not get stuck in that. The reason I'm reading this is because these are different people at different times in different cultures that are seeking for the answer why. What is this life about? What is the purpose? What is the point? Why do we deal with hardship and actually make it harder on ourselves? Why would we ever do that? Because there's no greater joy that you can find. There's no greater life lived than one that is lived in service of others. And I know it's like beating a dead horse when it comes to this from me, but I will never stop being shocked and in awe of the fact that we get to participate in the kingdom work that God is doing in this world. There's been so much hurt and difficulty that the church has brought on this world, right? So many ways that it has fallen short because it's full of people in process. But I still truly believe That is God's conduit to show his love and grace to this world. You know how Jesus said that that would be done? If you want people to know who you belong to, it's how you love one another. And it starts here, you guys on this lawn, on this grass, the people that you're surrounded by. Because when you love one another, it does something, it stirs each other up for what? For good works. That when you encourage one another, when you sacrifice a little bit to yourself, maybe, you, maybe you're an elder and you're doing something and you're like, I'm going to have this conversation with this person, right? You have authority. Hey, can I just talk to you? Can I just hear what's going on? I've been encouraged multiple times by a lot of you guys out there in the same way. And it stirs me up to do other things. And this is what the kingdom of God is about. This is what we get to be a part of. That life is tough and it's difficult and It's hard. And the road to follow Jesus doesn't make it all easy and perfect and go your way. But I truly believe with everything in me, I literally would not stand here if I didn't. I believe that there is no greater joy that can be found than investing in communities like this. Than freeing other people to live in the life that God has called them to live to participate mutually in one another. The Mother Teresa quote totally got me when I read it, and I feel like it will forever. If we have no peace, don't raise your hand, but think if you've ever felt like you've had not a lot of peace. If we have no peace, it's because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. You guys are such a blessing. Yesterday you showed that with a lot of your work. Today you showed that by showing up today. You bless the people that are around you. I'm guessing you wouldn't be here if you haven't been blessed by people that are around you. That's important. Let's not lose sight of that. Because it's that that we stir each other up. To to show God's love and grace and peace and joy to a world that desperately needs it. We're going to enter into a time of communion. You want to grab your things. And we're just going to actually use the beginning part of this passage. Jesus said, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus later in the story, a little teaser, you get the ending. You can read the ending too on your own, so it's not a cliffhanger. Um, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he takes the bread. And after explaining to it three or four times what was happening, He said, this is my body. This is my physical body. This is what is about to happen. Broken for you. Let's take the bread. And after having a meal together, Jesus took the cup. And when he took the cup, he said something that, again, is really profound when you think of what their view of the cup is. That fullness of God's wrath being poured out is completely quenched by this cup that you guys hold in your hands. That all of God's wrath, all of the thing that is required for God to respond to sin it is, is quenched by the blood of Jesus. Jesus. And he said, this is the cup, a new covenant poured out in my blood for you. Let's take the cup. God, we give you thanks. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the tension of a difficult road, of a life that is not defined by easy going, by everything being perfect, but by struggle and sacrifice. And we thank you that the only way that that is made possible is through the sacrifice that you first made for us. I ask a prayer of blessing on this community that you would bless those that are here, those that are even listening later, to know that what you have done in their life is completed so that we might be free to submit ourselves to serving one another, that we might be free to love one another in a way that is counter- and so different than the culture acts. But God, we know none of this is possible except through your sacrifice that you made for us first. So we give you thanks for your sacrifice. We give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for this community that you have blessed us with and ask that you continue to guide us and direct us in what you would have in your name.